welcome to the Rx for Biotech podcast. This is the podcast where we explore the changing healthcare delivery landscape with a focus on how biotechnology companies should be evolving their launch capabilities to ensure patient access to innovative new therapies. I'm your host and producer, Chris Lightley. Our guest today is Andrew Garst. Andrew received his PhD in biochemistry, biophysics, and molecular biology from the University of Colorado at Boulder in 2012, and then went on to do his postdoc at CU Boulder as well. After completing his postdoc, Andrew co-founded Inscripta and is currently a principal scientist at the company. So hi, Andrew. Um, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Welcome. Um, tell us a little bit more about what Inscripta does and, and how, they, how you support gene editing research. Hi, Chris. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so Inscripta has been quite a journey for me, my first uh, foray into uh, the biotech industry. And, you know, really the, the mission at Inscripta is to democratize CRISPR and gene editing uh, technologies for, you know, all the, the would-be users out there. You know, so right now it's a, it's a, there are a number of labs using it on sort of a, a one-off basis, you know, they're going to edit this one site in the genome and study that the phenotype or, you know, the, the uh, genotype phenotype linkage. Um, and that can be pretty laborious to do one at a time, um, especially in the, in the world of, you know, high throughput sequencing, where um, if you can adapt your, your, your technology to be able to leverage that for population scale analysis or look at lots of data in high throughput, um, you really start to get into this digital world of, of uh, you know, biology where you can make a lot of progress fast and understand, and understand you know, phenotypes and, and their the causal genotypes uh, a, lot, a lot more quickly. So, you know, for us, um, you know, making CRISPR something that's not a, a, you know, every tube is a different reaction where in one tube we do 10,000 gene editing reactions and every cell that comes out is, is a, you know, different genotype, and we're going to be delivering that to customers on an automated uh, instrument platform where they basically, you know, interact with our software to design what they want, and then they uh, get a tube, a, a kit with the, the reagents they need that they plug into the device, and out the other end come their edited cells, which they can then start doing whatever phenotyping they, they are interested in. So it's very general. You know, we've worked on internally things like um, lysine production. Lysine is a, a valuable uh, food additive that's produced at large scale by multiple companies here in the U.S. and in, in Japan, ADM, and uh, I'm forgetting the Japanese company, but uh, you know, it's a, a multi-billion dollar food additive. Um, so we've done some sort of proof of concept experiments in the script showing how fast we can drive up uh, lysine titers using this technology. Um, you know, we're, we're looking at lots of other, and that's all, uh, we have multiple podcast or, uh, web, uh, webcasts out there, webinars that people can go look at from the Inscripta website, um, where that story is, is played out in full. Um, you know, really the applications are sky's the limit, uh, for gene editing. So, um, we're just really excited to be able to take it from kind of the way I, the way I've explained it before is, you know, I think CRISPR gave, gave biology kind of a transistor-like moment, where we now have the ability to turn genes in, you know, from one state to another in almost a digital style, 
And what Inscripta is working on is more like a motherboard uh, where you've got lots of transistors all stacked together to be able to really get to powerful computation fast, but doing it on carbon-based systems instead of silicon. That's, that's a great analogy. I've never heard of it described that way, but it's, it's a confusing area too. And many of our listeners probably aren't as familiar with all the technology out there used for gene editing. So maybe let's start, go deeper into maybe an overview of what is genome editing and what are these nucleases? What, how important are they to helping you um, edit these genomes? Right. So the, the nucleases that, uh, Drive CRISPR editing. They're they're uh, a single polypeptide protein that, that uh, you know, binds to a piece of RNA. We call it the guide RNA, and then there's a sequence within the guide RNA that forms Watson-Crick complementarity with a some target site in the genome. Uh, usually, it's about 20 base pairs of complementarity that that uh, that drives that interaction, and they're they're highly specific. Um, so. They, they you know, bind down onto something called a PAM in the genome. It's a protospacer adjacent motif. So they're looking for a short little recognition motif. And then if, if the RNA that they're bound to is complementary to the DNA next to that motif, they unwind it and they, they cut both strands and then they fall off. Uh, and then you have repair proteins that have to come through and find the, you know, a template to repair that from. Um, so really, the, the, with with CRISPR, you know, what a lot of people have been doing, and what a, what a lot of the publications out there that are showing high throughput CRISPR screening have done, they they take it to the limit of basically adding lots of different flavors of that nuclease with different targeting sequences into cells, um, and then once the cut happens, there's error prone repair pathways that stick things back together, and you get lots of um, you know, the, through those errors, you get lots of knockouts, gene knockouts. Um, so that's that's one of the standard ways people are using CRISPR is to create a lot a, a lot of different gene knockouts and then try to understand how those affect you know the biology. Um, there's another layer to it where if we provide synthetic DNA that's designed to repair that that lesion once it's cut, um, we can then integrate in uh, you know whatever changes we want. And that's where it becomes systematic and sort of a forward engineering approach where we're defining what we're going to do to the genome a priori and then and then we go in and execute precision editing. Good. I think what how does the process actually work? Is that I mean we and also like we've heard of like these zinc finger and talons. Um, that those are acronyms that I think some of our listeners may hear talked about CRISPR, of course, being the one that's most commonly talked about, but like, can you just explain a little bit the differences between those mechanisms? Yeah. Yeah. So what they all have in common is they're all like essentially molecular scissors. They, they are you know, used to mediate double strand break cuts in the genome. And then once you have a cut, then you, you know, it's a cut and paste type type of editing. Um, so the, the talons and zinc fingers, they're also programmable, um, but the, the code for how they recognize DNA is a protein DNA recognition uh, code. So to build a custom zinc finger nuclease, for example, each zinc finger domain recognizes a different triplet of DNA. And so you need to string many of those together 
into one long concatamerizing finger uh, protein. And that's where you'll get specific uh, specificity for long sequences. So you need long sequence specificity because genome, genomes are big. The human genome's uh, you know, about 4 billion base pairs. So you want to be distinguishing one site from, you know, one target site from all the other potential sites in the genome. So you need that high precision. Um, but but uh, you also need to be able to program it. So you need, uh, you know, some way to easily, you know, change which target you're going to go after. So with zinc fingers, because it's a protein and, and talons for that matter, because it's a protein uh, centric recognition uh, um, mechanism, you have to engineer a new protein for every site that you want to target. Um, why CRISPR has really gone kind of viral is uh, uh, it's um, an RNA based uh, specificity. And when we can, when you know, we have much better ways to synthesize short uh, sequences of DNA and RNA, and that's just a much more sophisticated technology than doing protein engineering. And so it's just much easier to repurpose a CRISPR enzyme and just give it a different RNA. Those we can make very cheap and easy versus having to re-engineer a protein from scratch each time. Uh, so we can, we can change the CRISPR specificity using cheap reagents and, and really you know, blow up the, we also have, it also ties in, I should say, to you know, all the short read sequencing, um, next generation sequencing technologies in really nice ways that you know, make it easy to tell what you're doing, even at uh, you know, large scale in a pooled experiment. So I'd say it's that difference between protein engineering and, and having to you know, engineer large fragments of DNA versus having to engineer short fragments of DNA um, that encode a short RNA, right? Right, I think, so uh, the mechanism I know has often, I think one of the limitations that, that I've read about is the um, off-target effects, the fact that because there's double-strand breaks, you know, it can cause obviously insertions, you know, and have these off-target effects. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because we want to understand that when we talk about the human applications to treating diseases. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, the, the probability that a 20 base pair sequence randomly chosen in the genome is unique um, is actually uh, um, about one in 16 billion. Um, if you were to just take a random, you know, sort of estimate of sequence space, but of course, you know, genomes are biased. They have lots of repetitive DNA. There's lots of you know repeats of, of certain similar sequences. So there's a lot of informatics to figure out what sequences um, you can target and not have to worry about you know finding a, a close representation somewhere else in the genome. So that's always a concern. So there's a lot of there's been a lot of development of algorithms that help, you know, um, score uh, the, the guide probability that you're going to get a cut, you know, at just one site versus a cut at many sites. And then there's been lots of, lots of empirical uh, effort going into also, you know, developing assays that can detect that because even when you don't, even if you have, say, a one base pair mismatch, um, you know, between one site, you know, that's on chromosome one and another site that's on chromosome 20, um, you know, that might still not be enough for the enzyme to distinguish and you'll get 
in those at both sites instead of just one. And so, you know, there's been a lot of effort to both, again, predict where the sites are going to be before you even start the experiment, and then also collect data on where the, where the edits are happening across the whole genome and get empirical machine learning driven models of, of how targeting really works in a, in a given cell type. And that is then fed back into it iteratively into better and better design algorithms um, so that you can, you know, make sure you're only targeting the site you want and not all the other sites in the genome. And it is, you know, there is like anything in biology, there's slop in it, um, you know, uh, enzymes aren't, aren't perfect. Um, and if it has a substrate that looks kind of like what it should, should be, you know, working on, um, they, there's promiscuity. So that's, that's where a lot of that uh, concern from off-target comes from. And it's been detected in, in many different systems. I will say it's, um, I think there's, you know, for the research community, it's less of a problem. They're, they're usually trying to do, you know, high throughput stuff where they can tolerate, um, you know, some, you know, uh, uh, slop and noise. But in the clinical setting where you're trying to, you know, do a gene correction for, for a therapeutic model, that's where you're going to really, really have a, a you know, high bar of demonstrating specificity. Yeah, I know that. I think late last year, Dr. David Liu from the Broad Institute at Harvard and MIT published what I thought in Nature was maybe something that may address some of this. I was wondering if you could elaborate. I think it was called Search and Replace or Prime Editing, um, which basically didn't require that double-stranded break to um, from the nuclease. So it's a different approach to try and prevent some of these off-target effects. What what What's the promise of that technology? It's very interesting. Yeah, I, I know what uh, I know. The study you're talking about, you know, yeah, they were able to show that they could get precision editing to happen um, via a reverse transcribed RNA. So they load up the nuclease with an RNA that both does the targeting, but also has a, a, a three prime end that can go back and integrate at a NIC site and be used as an art uh, reverse transcription template by a fused RT enzyme that then, you know, transcribes off of that RNA and, and makes a, a newly synthesized piece of DNA that gets embedded back into the genome uh, through a flap resolution mechanism. And the, the, I think the, the big difference there when you go to single strand is that there's far fewer errors that get incorporated into the, the process in a, just you know, inherently by the biology, by the cell, the repair process is cleaner for that than for a double strand break, because most cells, especially mammalian cell types, um, they have highly expressed copies of, of the non-homologous end joining pathways, NHEJ, that that essentially splice broken ends of DNA together, and they outcompete homologous repair pathways by many orders of magnitude in most cases. So. Yeah, that was the that was a big breakthrough because now they can essentially feed the the you know the mod the the nicked DNA into different repair processes downstream uh, and get higher precision editing because those proteins just don't inherently don't make the mistakes that the NHEJ would would introduce and the NHEJ is always competing with the double strand break repair processes you want if you're doing precision editing uh, for for clinical purposes. 
and 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 if you get an off-target site, that I should point this out. If you if you nick with an off-target site, um, that just gets filled in, and the cell doesn't care. So if you think about you know DNA, uh, you know uh, damage, you know generally, our cells, every single cell in our body experiences thousands of single-strand nicks every day um, that get repaired and there's, there's, you know, four billion years of evolution that's figured out how to do that um, pretty well. But they only, you know, experience maybe a couple double-strand breaks a day. And it's, it's high alert for cells in a double-strand break where they really are, they go into the panic mode and start ligating things together and, you know, potentially causing cancer. Or who, you know, it's one of the main ways in which we get error during, uh, you know, replication uh, in, in cells. Uh, and so, you know, it's just a, it's an evolutionary byproduct of, of you know, the way, the way biology, you know, formed on this planet, the DNA, you know, double-strand DNA breaks are highly toxic, and they just, they just don't have good systems for dealing with that, whereas NICs are fine. Sure. Well, no, I think, no, I appreciate that background. I think, you know, we'll switch gears here for a little bit now, because you mentioned cancer, um, you know, that's an area I know where there's, lot of interest um, in, in applying uh, genome editing tools, but maybe start off by telling us which diseases do you, you, you know, are most appropriate or are the best targets for genome editing? Yeah, that's, well, so inherited diseases, uh, you know, where the, you know, the, where it's a single molecular marker are still, I think, going to be, you know, the prime targets for, for uh, gene therapy for some time. Um, because, you know, if it gets into, you know, um, pleiotropic, you know, phenotypes where there's many, many genetic drivers and it's just not well understood, then you don't know what to, what to go, you know, fix. So I think there's a lot of diseases that fall into that category where people, they're still under investigation just to understand how they work. But in the case of like diseases like cystic fibrosis, where it's well known what the molecular drivers are for that disease, or um, you know, I think uh, you know some of the some of the um, there are certain cancer types where it's pretty well understood, at least you know what's driving it, or for that matter, what what uh, you know T cell therapies might need to be you know manufactured to to fight it. So that's why you're seeing a, a you know a boom in the CAR T. Um, industry because people you know know what antibodies they need to display on a on a or what protein uh, receptors they need to display on a on a t-cell to activate the immune system against the cancer um so yeah i would say yeah well-defined you know well characterized diseases mostly inherited um, diseases i mean because what what happens when you get to things that develop you know um you know well, one of the things, one of the problems with CRISPR is delivery. So, to be able to deliver CRISPR reagents to every cell in your body is just a—we don't have technology to do that. So, where where you can deliver is usually on the single cell level, and then you need that—you know—that cell, that modified cell, to be able to go do something once transplanted back into, you know, a living organism. It's interesting. You're right. The first patients treated in trials last year are, were, to your point, they were these monogenetic diseases like beta thalassemia and sickle cell. Um, in fact, just in the last few days, I read 
the European Hematology Association annual meeting is ongoing virtually. And Vertex and CRISPR Technologies actually presented data from a couple of patients from their CLIMB 111 and CLIMB 121 clinical trials in those patient populations as transfusion-dependent beta thalassemia and sickle cell disease. And the response was amazing. In all four of the patients, uh, well, sorry, three patients from two different trials, all of them um, had a response, showed efficacy, um, and they're being followed up. So that was exciting news. Just in the last couple of days, it kind of speaks to the promise of, of, of treating human disease. Can, can the phenotypic effects of geno, genome editing be accurately predicted, Andrew? Um, you know, yeah, you're getting into, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, we're at the cutting edge of understanding that. Um, and, and I would say like for Inscripta, we're, we're a tool building, you know, company. So we're trying to enable access to the tools for the people doing the applications, I think there's a lot of downstream work, you know, assay development to make sure you understand what you're doing to the cell once you've introduced those reagents, major changes. You know, I think that's where a lot of the, you know, work ahead is gonna be for, you know, FDA approval and all these clinical trials is, is really making sure that we're not, you know, doing something, you know, harmful by, by you know, even just introducing these reagents into the cells, let alone, you know, modifying the genome, so. Yeah, and I suppose uh, we're talking also about somatic cell um, gene editing and not germline, um, which has a number of ethical concerns associated with it. But looking ahead, Andrew, what, what do you see as, as some of the scientific uses for CRISPR beyond, you know, beyond genome editing? Are there other potential applications you see in the future? Oh yeah, there's, there's a whole bunch, there's a lot of really cool things going on. So gene editing is certainly, I think one of the, the, the high value, you know, propositions that a lot of people are, are looking to deploy it for, but um, there's uh, a company called Mammoth Biotechnologies that's uh, to leveraging some of the, the interesting properties of the um, type five CRISPR nucleases, where once they bind to a specific sequence, you get the, you activate um, kind of a general nuclease activity where they start to chew on uh, single-stranded pieces of DNA. So they call this a Sherlock assay, where they can put in small amounts of say a virus or whatever DNA that they want to detect they give to you know below femtomolar concentrations of it, and when, once the CRISPR enzyme sees that DNA, it activates this nuclease activity and it starts to chew on labeled pieces of DNA where you can you know turn on a you can basically get a fluorescence output. Um, so they're they're building um, assays for everything from the COVID detection to you know lots of different viral detection you know infectious disease applications. Um, based on you know those those functions, because again, once you have this ability to detect real time a sequence of DNA and you know what you're looking for, you know that's a pretty powerful uh, you know tool to have. You know, lots of people have been doing that kind of thing with qPCR or or you know digital uh, droplet PCR or you know there's lots of different methods out there. You know, array based uh, hybridization detection. 
all of those take quite a bit of time. Whereas if you can just drop in a protein into a sample tube and then, or, or run it up a strip and, and you have a fluorescence readout with minimal equipment, that's a really powerful, you know, diagnostic to be able to deploy in the field. So that's one that comes to mind. Um, let's see. Uh, I mean, outside of like human therapy, I was just reading about, you know, we're, we're making, there, there's a company called Biofarm that just made uh, modified chickens in the last year um, that are, that are, they've, they've figured out how to, you know, get um, the modified stem cells to transplant into uh, uh, sterile male chickens and then they become fertile again, but they have modified forms of uh, the gene that makes them susceptible to certain flu. So they're now trying to you know, get that going in China and uh, in, in Asia, in Vietnam and China for uh, making you know, flu resistant um, chicken crops. There's, uh, you know, we're already seeing dairy cattle that are being born without horns based on genetic modification. And that is happening at the germline. So once you get outside humans, the ethics have been uh, a little more open and people are doing things germline to try to, you know, with the dairy cow, for example, the, the, the goal there is, you know, they've been chopping off those horns so they don't kill each other in the, in the um, you know, in, in fights in their kennels. Uh, and that's cost the industry millions of dollars a year. And now they've been able to, in one generation, rather than breed them back out over the next hundred years, in basically one generation cattle, fix that, get rid of the horns and, and start growing cattle that are, you know, essentially, you know, the same as all the other dairy cattle you would have, but they don't have horns and they don't have to process them, uh, put them through big processing plants where they chop off their horns. <laughs> yeah, well, that's amazing. That, that definitely, I think, underscores for our listeners the power of these gene editing technologies and all the great work you and others are doing in the field to power us uh, along. I want to thank you, Andrew, for taking the time today to help educate us about these gene editing technologies. Um, for our listeners out there, you can learn more about Boulder Biotech Launch Specialist Life Science Consulting by checking out our website at www.boulderbiotechlaunchspecialist.com. Thank you.